questions from you today. All right, gang, we're going to get rolling. It is 1030. A reminder that next week is Holy Week. And so since we are all going to be in church so many more times than normal, we are not meeting for Bible study next week. And then following that, we have three more weeks before the end of this season. And so I hope that you will make those a priority. We're going to be finishing up Solomon, talking about the disillusion of the kingdoms, going into exile, doing a little bit more of all of that stuff to the end. And I believe that I said this at the very beginning, but we haven't talked much about this. A couple years ago, when I asked the question, what does everyone really want to do next? And that was, I think, after our Genesis Revelation couple, couple years. People said they wanted to do a gospel again. That was the most common response. We've already done Luke. And so doing Mark and Matthew makes a little less sense than doing John. And so our intention is to do John next year. But in order to get to John, I wanted to step through both Moses and David because it makes a lot more sense when we look at the way that John tells the gospel story, if we are very solid on both the prophet and the king identity of Moses and David. And so we have three more weeks after this week, um, after Easter and kind of to the first of May. And then next school year, we're going to hit the Gospel of John. And so I am a little intimidated by the Gospel of John. I'm just confessing that to you now because John's a whole bunch of theology. And I am much better with history than theology. And so we're going to do it together. It's going to be great. So today, we are continuing on in 1 Kings. We're going to sort of close out chapter 4, and we're going to actually go through chapters 5 and 6. I wanted more time with chapter 8 after Easter. Um, I should say after Easter Sunday, because Easter is 50 days. So I wanted more time in chapter 8 after Holy Week and Easter Sunday. So we're going to go ahead and do 6 this week. So sorry if you did not read ahead, um, and you typically do, but you'll be just fine. I love questions, so ask them, and let's say a prayer, and we'll get started. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of this day and for the gift of life, for bringing us together that we have time that we can study your word. Open us up. Help us to put down those things that worry us and cause us anxiety. Make some space inside of us for your spirit to fill us up that as we study your word together, we can be transformed, transformed by your spirit to be your hands and feet of love in the world. Today we offer before you all those we hold in our hearts and our minds who need you most, those who are sick, those who may be scared, those who feel isolated and alone, those who are confused, We also lift up all those who have died, remembering especially those in Nashville who mourn the loss at Covenant School. Be with everyone 
and help us to love as you love us. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so any questions from last week before we jump in this week? Things that have been burning in your minds. All right. Last week, we began chapter four by talking about Solomon's largesse. So as chapter four lays out, Solomon has created a huge structure in his kingdom to support his grandeur. We see in chapter four, verse seven, that Solomon and 12 officials over all Israel who provided food for the king and his household, each one had to make provision for one month in the year. And I mentioned that essentially what he has set up now are 12 little fiefdoms under his kingship where they have an entire system that can grow food, raise livestock, work the land in any way they need in order to support Solomon and his thousands of people who create the court. As I mentioned at the very end of last week, this goes against the kind of person good Jews were really supposed to be. Now we know that because we have read way back in Deuteronomy what a good Jew is supposed to be and specifically what a king is not supposed to be. And what we see here is Solomon being very much kind of the non-Israelite king. He's not living into the dream or the uh, details in which Deuteronomy says a king should. What I want to note is what Deuteronomy says about a king. And so don't worry about turning to it. But in Deuteronomy chapter 17, Beginning in verse 14, we have a few verses where it discusses what a king should be. Actually, it says what a king shouldn't be. Deuteronomy 17, 14 says, When you have come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, so this is speaking to the Israelites who have not yet come into the promised land, and you have taken possession of it and settled in it, and you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set over you a king whom the Lord your God will choose. He must not acquire many horses for himself, and he must not acquire many wives for himself, or else his heart will turn away. Also, silver and gold he must not acquire in great quantity for himself, neither exalting himself above other members of the community, nor turning aside from the commandments, either to the right or the left, so that he and his descendants may reign long over his kingdom in Israel. Okay, so let's just take that little note of Deuteronomy now. Remember where Deuteronomy falls. Essentially, you've had all of the patriarchs, the Egyptian captivity, they've left Egypt, they've been at Sinai to, to receive the Ten Commandments, and now Deuteronomy is kind of the how-to guide to being Jewish. And so this how-to guide, in the middle of the different rules and boundaries it's setting forth, says, by the way, when you come into the land that I promised you, you're going to want a king. And when you want a king, let's make sure your king does not grow out of scope of what a good Jewish person should be. And then proceeds to list all the ways that a king could grow out of scope. And if we look at first Kings, it is essentially everything Solomon did. Now, why would Deuteronomy 
prefigure what Solomon does as king. Thank you. Good answer. Yes, Bible scholars. Deuteronomy comes before 1 Kings in the Bible, but Deuteronomy was not written until after the kingdoms fell and the Jews went into exile. And so those Torah books are at once telling some historic stories. Who are we? Who is humanity in relationship to God? How does God work with us? What is this earth and how are we supposed to take responsibility for it? But it also gets down into the details of how can we get this wrong? And the people in exile are reflecting back to why everything seemed to go downhill after Solomon. And obviously one of the answers is that Solomon grew way too big for his britches. He was not to be king that way. That's not the ideal king. And so they began to develop really what is an ideal king. And what they set forth in Deuteronomy is much more of a people's king, not the kind of grandeur of Solomon. So that's an important note as we start working through the way that Solomon lived out his kingship. David, although David had a palace and David was obviously in control of a lot of Israel, David did not have the court that Solomon did. Solomon took David's, essentially David's security in that foundation, and Solomon just ballooned everything around him. Thousands of people and chariots and horses, and then when he built the temple, we're going to get to all of the gold and silver that he acquired that he's not supposed to, according to Deuteronomy. And so that's just a big note about Solomon's massive court structure. In addition, I want us to just consider how Solomon's structure begins to reshape Israel as it has been up to this point. So if we imagine back to, I mean, gosh, pre-Egypt, You've got the Israelites, the um, Semite people from Abraham on, who are essentially, they're shepherds. They might be a little agrarian. They're sort of nomadic adjacent. They're not really nomadic, but they have to kind of pick up and move a few times because the land that can grow food is already occupied. And so they've got a tent here, then they've got a tent over there. They're not moving every year, but they move a few times. And so they really don't have the kind of anchor of a community that Israel establishes in the Promised Land. But even through the establishment of the tribes in the Promised Land, there is still this sense of we do for ourselves what needs done. So within a particular household, they are growing the food they need, they are raising the animals they need. They are building the buildings they need. They're kind of doing it themselves. And they're all spread out. Everybody's kind of doing their own stuff. And you occasionally have these unifying moments. It's often in order to defend themselves against a foreign aggressor. But David begins to build some unity that really did not exist. But David stops short of a big, thorough, what we might consider like feudal system but Solomon does not. Solomon now is transforming the economy of Israel. 
into one that is very stratified, where there are people at the bottom doing a whole lot of labor that then passes up wealth to people in the middle who relate to the king, who then pass that wealth up even more so that the king is living a, his best life. And we see then as we go through chapters four and five that that good life trickles down to essentially you've got like a high class Jewish Israeli group of people. Solomon can only do this if Israel expands and begins to include non-Israelites. Solomon runs essentially a mini empire and Solomon's little empire begins to relate, uh, you might say, um, kind of politically speaking, but also economically, to some of the big empires like Egypt, Lebanon, and beyond. And as we will go through this chapter, I want you to note that the economic shift that happens here is one that sounds normal to us, but was not normal for Israel up until this moment. And so as we, mm, that's good for now. I'm gonna delve into the way that we kind of parse that out later. But any questions about just the general setup of Solomon's kingdom before we get into some of the specifics? All right, let's keep going with chapter four. Look at chapter four, verse 20. We're going to talk about Solomon's rule and his wisdom. Chapter 4, verse 20, helps to exemplify how the Israelites are having a good life. Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand by the sea. They ate and drank and were happy. Verse 25, during Solomon's lifetime, Judah and Israel lived in safety. From Dan, even to Beersheba, all of them under their vines and fig trees. So we'll pause there. What we are seeing in chapter four is the continued evolution of this good life. And so what is being said, particularly in, in verses 20 and 25, they're eating and drinking and are happy. They are under the vines and fig trees. Essentially what this means, imagine a cabana by the pool. That's really what this is describing. When you say they're eating and drinking and happy under their vines and fig trees, they're not really working. They're not doing manual labor. They are enjoying the fruits and the lifestyle of someone else's manual labor. And so there is now a stratification of the economic system in a way that does not happen before Solomon. Instead, now we get a system that looks a little bit more like how we live. So I'm going to say everyone in this room is definitely eating, drinking under fig trees and vines. When we look at the global structure of the world, just imagine what you have. I'm not even going to talk about transportation, housing, any of that stuff. Think of just what you have eaten or what you have had to drink in the last 24 hours and begin to imagine all the complex structure that made what you ate and drank in the last 24 hours possible. First off, think of just the meat on one of your plates in the last 24 hours. How many different people 
both contributed to the land that fed the animals that then they had to sell to be slaughtered, to be processed, to be packaged, to be shipped, to be sold to you to eat. And how many of those people have you ever met? I mean, I'm probably going to say none. <laughs> Think even bigger than that. Think about what you had to drink. Because I know some of you had some alcohol in the last 24 hours. And so just imagine where that came from. Probably not from this country. And so now you're talking about an entire global complexity of how those different things were grown, distilled, aged, bottled, shipped, sold, again, for you to have something in your cup. We benefit hugely from an incredibly complex, globalized system. I dare say, if we had to actually, starting tonight, find our own food, uh, many of us would starve. And so, and I don't mean find it like find canned goods in some store. No, 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 no. I mean like you now have to find uh, plants you can eat. Lord, I, I poisoned myself before dark tonight. Or forget meat, like I would just become vegetarian because that's never going to happen. And so we are sort of like the Israelites described here in chapter 4 where we're enjoying the fruits of a super complex system. Now, I don't want you to hear me that that necessarily equates to extreme wealth. Now, on a global scale, we are all extremely wealthy. But I don't think it's a necessarily equal one-to-one. -one. These Israelites weren't necessarily wealthy, but their lifestyle shifts. And a lifestyle shift where you no longer do a lot of the actual work your life requires means that you can't do a lot of the work that your life requires. And so what we will see as the kingdoms progress beyond Solomon is that the shift happening right now does not really set the kingdoms up for a good future. They become too unable to do real work. And so they become dependent on other entities outside of their own national borders, and that then weakens their capacity for autonomy. We will see that as they begin to prepare to build the temple. Okay, questions about lifestyle. I wanna talk about Solomon's wisdom as well. Nobody feels offended by my complexity. There you go. Okay. Now let's talk about Solomon's identity, just his wisdom. We know the wisdom of Solomon. We understand that Solomon was, has always been and continues to be um, kind of yoked to this idea of being super wise. We talked about his capacity to judge disagreements last week. This week, let's look at verse 29, still chapter four, verse 29. God gave Solomon very great wisdom, discernment, and breadth of understanding as vast as the sand of the seashore, so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the East and all the wisdom of Egypt. He was wiser than anyone else. His fame spread throughout all the surrounding nations. He composed 3,000 proverbs and his songs numbered 1,005. He would speak of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon, 
to the hyssop that grows on the wall. He would speak of animals and birds and reptiles and fish. People came from all the nations to hear the wisdom of Solomon. They came from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. So we'll pause there. The fame of Solomon was anchored in this idea of wisdom. We hear that people traveled to Israel to hear Solomon's wisdom. This contributed to his authority and helped him expand this mini empire. We're going to see in the next chapter that he uses this capacity and this authority to begin to trade for things on a national scale outside of his little mini empire. But it's important for us to note that Israel has now, at least according to this story, Israel has now become a player on the global stage. If you think about Israel's history, I'm not talking about the Jews necessarily, and I'm not talking about Israelites as Semitic peoples pre-Egypt. I mean the people who came out of Egypt started a nation about 40 years after they came out of Egypt, and they were just a bunch of tribes on the land. And it wasn't really until Saul, and then David, and now Solomon, that they have classed up to be the kind of nation that the other big national powers would relate to. This is similar to what happens on a global stage now. We have big nations like the US and China, India, and then you've got important nations that aren't necessarily big, like Britain, France, Germany, that kind of stuff. And then you've got many, many other nations who may be physically or geographically big or small but who don't seem to really register. Like they don't count as much. And I don't mean like UN Security Council counting. I mean just economically speaking, like they exist, we know them. We see them walk in with their flag every Olympics. Um, and we see, oh, they have, oh look, they have three athletes this year, not just two. I mean, you know, you know which nations I'm talking about. So that kind of, that's sort of where Israel has been. Israel has existed. Nations like Egypt, Babylon, Persia, Ethiopia, they know e Israel is there, but Israel just doesn't register. They're, they're kind of just inconsequential. Now with Solomon, and perhaps described as Solomon being the biggest magnet, the most attractive bit, but really it's Solomon's structure that has put Israel on the map, so to speak. And now these other nations that are probably older, certainly more significant than Israel, are taking notice. They are now sending emissaries to Israel. And we know this will continue. Now there's, this, there's the obvious exile moment, but once Israel is reestablished after the exile, Israel still ranks as a power in that area of the world, never as important as these other nations until the 1940s, but essentially it is now on the stage in a way that it has not been until Solomon's kingship. That's just an important kind of arc of the history of the nation that we should note. And of course, we know that there are little moments throughout the Bible where that matters a bit. So who's the first Gentile baptized after Jesus' resurrection? Mm -mm -mm -mm. 
Yes. The centurion, and the centurion is Roman. How about the second person baptized? Second Gentile baptized. Come on, Bob, you know. It's a, oh, I mean his household, yes. The centurion's household, yes. And then outside of that, the Ethiopian eunuch. So remember the Ethiopian eunuch shows up, Philip baptizes him. Where's, why is he there? Well, he's there to represent the queen of Ethiopia. He is the emissary that Ethiopia, a bigger and more important nation at the time, has sent to Israel to make sure that there is good relationships between the two nations. That kind of stuff starts here. It is Solomon that brings Israel up to enough significance to matter to these other nations. And then there are little ripples of that. And of course, for our purposes, expanding Jesus's gospel message beyond the Jewish people is critically important. And that happens in Israel because Israel starting now matters to these other nations in a way that it had not before. I guess I should also note that we hear, we hear a euphemistic phrase in chapter four that essentially references people now paying taxes to the king. That's totally normal for us. We know how this works. You can look at you know, the Middle Ages and beyond in Europe. We get kingdoms. It happens everywhere in the world where you've got a particular kind of monarchical structure where people down here are paying to the people in the middle who pay to the people at the top. Totally normal, but it begins here in a way that Israel had not known before. All right, any questions about Solomon's rule or structure, economy, wisdom stuff before we shift to the temple part of today's lesson? All right, let's go to the temple. Chapter five. The next two sections, or the last two for today, will be preparing to build the temple and the actual construction of the temple. So let's start on chapter five. That's really the preparation of the temple. So chapter five, verse one, let's just read a little bit of it to give us some context. Now remember what I said about trading with other nations. We're gonna see that right here. Chapter five, verse one. Now King Hiram of Tyre sent his servants to Solomon when, they heard, when he heard that they had appointed him king in place of his father. For Hiram had always been a friend to David. Solomon sent word to Hiram saying, you know that my father David could not build a house for the name of the Lord, his God, because of the warfare with which his enemies surrounded him until the Lord put them under the soles of his feet. But now the Lord my God has given me rest on every side. There is neither adversary nor misfortune. So I intend to build a house for the name of the Lord my God. As the Lord said to my father David, your son, whom I will set on your throne in your place, shall build the house for my name. Therefore, command that cedars from the Lebanon be cut for me. My servants will join your servants, and I will give you whatever wages you set for your servants. For you know that there is no one among us who knows how to cut timber like the Sidonians. When Hiram heard the words of Solomon, he rejoiced greatly and said, Blessed be the Lord today, who has given to David a wise son to be over this great people. 
Hiram sent word to Solomon, I have heard the message that you have sent to me. I will fulfill all your needs in the matter of cedar and cypress timber. My servants shall bring it down to the sea from the Lebanon. I will make it into rafts to go by sea to the place you indicate. I will have them broken up there for you to take away, and you shall meet my needs by providing food for my household. So Hiram supplied Solomon's every need for timber of cedar and cypress. Solomon in turn gave Hiram 20,000 cores of wheat as food for his household and 20 cores of fine oil. Solomon gave this to Hiram year by year. So the Lord gave Solomon wisdom as he had promised. There was peace between Hiram and Solomon, and the two of them made a treaty. All right, so we're going to pause there. A lot's happening here that, again, seems pretty normal to us. This is not normal for Israel. We are shifting into a brand new way of being. So geographically speaking, let's just imagine you've got skinny Israel, and on its west coast, you've got the Mediterranean. If you go up the Mediterranean coast, the next big nation you get to is Lebanon. At the time, Tyre of Sidon, Sidon is really the nation up there. When they speak of the Lebanon, they're really talking about the land. They're not talking about the nation. Lebanon as a country does not exist at this point. It is the Sidonians. They are north of Israel, but they run the land. You've likely heard of the Cedars of Lebanon. They were big, strong trees. And what Israel does not have are big, strong trees. But Israel does have a lot of farmland. And they're able to produce things like wheat and oil. Lebanon, or the Lebanon area, cannot grow food quite so well. So Solomon, the king down here in Israel, talks to Hiram, the king up there in Sidon. And they say, listen, I've got some stuff you need. You've got some stuff I need. I will pay you with this stuff you can't really produce yourself for, the, for you to share the things that I can't produce myself. Totally basic economics. But this, this is a national scale shift away from autonomy. Israel had up to this point been able to do its own stuff. It did not depend on other nations. It did not have to trade with other nations. It was not vulnerable to the trade that it had with other nations. I mean, you know how this works in our world today. There are certain countries that do things we do not like, but they have stuff we need. And so we don't go tell them what they can or cannot do directly because we want to make sure they still give us the stuff we want that they have that we don't have. That, in a sense, produces a problem. That means that politically, you have to compromise all the time. And then when people say, well, why'd you do that to that nation but not to the other nation? Duh, it's because of their resources. That's why money, oil, you name it. It's because we cannot always do to any other nation whatever we want if we depend on them for something. What Israel is now doing is shifting into a phase of its life where it will now begin to depend on other nations. It will have to make compromises for what it does and how it functions in order to maintain relationships with other nations because it's established an economic structure that requires it. That starts now.
And that will ultimately be part of the downfall of the kingdom period. Sidon sends all of these trees, both cedar and cypress, down the Mediterranean to Israel. So you may have been wondering um, when he said, I'll make them into rafts to go by sea to wherever you indicate that you can take it from there. Essentially what's happening is Lebanon is going to cut all these trees down, take them over to the coast, bind them up, float them down the coast of the Mediterranean to wherever Solomon wants, and then they will bring them on land, detach all the tree timber from one another to take them across the land over to Jerusalem to help build the temple and the other buildings. By the way, this is not really for the temple. It's a little bit for the temple. This is really for building projects that go way beyond the temple. As we will see shortly, the temple is a whole lot more stone than the temple is wood. But Solomon needs all the wood to build everything else. Let me see. Any questions about that structure before we get into the actual construction of the temple? You all are easy today. I do have a question. Yes. David didn't build the temple. Solomon did. Did he have, who did they need? I mean, they didn't have the temple, did they have? Oh, yes, great question. Okay, so, correct. David did not build the temple. Solomon built the temple. And then the question is, then where did they meet? Which is perfect segue into the building of the temple. I will answer that question. So, thank you. But I'm going to hold it for a moment. Any other questions? That's a very important distinction between the temple and, say, a church. All right, then let's jump into the actual temple. Chapter 6. Chapter 6, verse 1. In the 480th year after the Israelites came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, which is the second month, he began to build the house of the Lord. The house that King Solomon built for the Lord was 60 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, 30 cubits high. The vestibule in front of the nave of the house was 20 cubits wide across the width of the house. Its depth was 10 cubits in front of the house. For the house he made windows with recessed frames and on and on and on. Verse 7. The house was built with stone, finished at the quarry, so that neither hammer nor axe nor any tool of iron was heard in the temple while it was being built. Okay, let's pause there. There are a few things I want to note, three in particular. The first is years and dates are not what they appear to be. So we see right at the beginning of chapter six, 480 years after the Israelites came out of Egypt. So we are tempted to then say, okay, so if we know the exile was 70 years, and then we know that this happened for that long, and then we know that this happened for that long, to begin to backdate and step into, then when did the Israelites come out of Egypt? When did they go into Egypt? When was Abraham, did he come from Ur, and on, on, on. Stop. We've talked in here before. Numbers are not meant to convey historic accuracy. Numbers are meant to convey some kind of significant truth about whatever is happening at that moment. 480 years are 12 cycles of 40. And so what you have there in that number 
is two sacred numbers put together. We've talked about how 40 is a sacred number. Israelites, 40 years in the wilderness. Jesus, 40 days in the wilderness. On and on and on. 40 is important. That's why there are 40 days of Lent. 40 is an important number. 12 is an important number. 12 children of Jacob, 12 tribes of Israel, 12 disciples of Jesus. 12 and 40 together gives us a really special number. So 480 is not meant to be actual years. 480 is meant to communicate a very sacred moment. When this temple is constructed, it is constructed in God's time. And so this is a sacred moment. It is the right moment. It makes sense in history. It is, in a sense, ordained by God to happen now. Should not have happened before now. Should not happen after now. Should happen right now because it's 1240s of time since they left Egypt to where the temple begins. Good? Note number two. Silence is apparently important in the construction of the temple. This is unique. This is not a common thing. Typically, praising God, recognizing God's omnipotence and goodness is done with noise. You're banging cymbals, or you're singing, or dancing, or some other form like that. At least you're praying out loud. It is important to note, apparently, that neither hammer, nor axe, nor any tool of iron was heard in the temple while it was being built. There is something important here about the power of quiet. There is something sacred about the temple being constructed in quiet. I have no real idea why this matters to the writer, but I guess a big construction project that is also quiet is super unique. And so the temple is some kind of very special from the very beginning. I don't know about you, I've never been to a quiet construction site. And so the idea that you are forming, it's almost two things. One, everything comes ready to be assembled. That alone keeps the construction site quiet. That's very unusual. But how in the world are they able to cut the stones the way they need them cut without being on site? Can you just forget the amazing capacity for ancient peoples to move around tons and tons worth of stones and put them on top of each other? That alone is incredible. Now you're telling me that they had the precision to cut those stones over there and they fit perfectly over here and fit perfectly quietly. It's really meant to communicate to you that the temple is something stunningly special, unique and important. And so I don't want us to miss that it's not just about being quiet. It's about being totally, almost otherworldly in the way that it was put together. Number three, I do want to note that when we use the word temple, that's an English translation. The Hebrew word for temple is the same word as house. And so occasionally as you're reading through this, you do see simply house. It is the house of God. It is not really the temple. It is the temple, 
But essentially what is being built here is God's house. And so there are a number of different ways that we need to distinguish between the temple and what we might imagine as a church. And so this gets to Sandra's question. The temple is not a gathering site for people. The temple is where sacrifices are made. The priests go in and they give God stuff. But also remember, the temple is where God is present on earth. We have a different sense of God's presence. Through Jesus, we essentially glean that God is in us. So where is God? Everywhere. That's what we would say. A Christian could also say, where is God? In our hearts and in our minds. Sure. Where is God? In the tabernacle? In the ombre? Sure. Where is God? In our church building? Sure. Sounds great. God's all over the place. That is not the Jewish understanding of God. God's presence physically is in the temple. We remember that way back, we started with the Exodus. And when they get to Sinai, they're told to build the tent, the tabernacle. That's where the ark goes. And that ark has moved with the tent. And do you remember the pillar of cloud and fire that would go from that spot? That was God touching the earth. And then when the pillar would go away, they knew it was time to move again. And as long as you saw that pillar of cloud, you stayed where you were because God was there. At this point now, the ark has been brought to Jerusalem. David did that. And now they're building the permanent, so they think, the permanent home of God, the permanent house for God. If we look at the measurements of this temple, 60 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, 30 cubits high. A cubit is like half a yard. So think about that, 30 yards long. That's not nothing, but that's not so big. If you look at this space, this temple is, what, this? I mean, maybe, maybe not even this, actually. And so what we are building here, what they are building here, is not meant to be a place that houses the people like we think of as churches or even as synagogues today. Synagogues gather people now. The temple did not do that. The temple was just a place people would come to with their stuff and then offer to God. But the priests really did that on behalf of the people. There was a yard where people could kind of hang out a little bit, a portico and that sort of stuff. If you have been to Jerusalem or if you have seen pictures of the second temple, that's where Jesus was. The second temple is many times bigger than this first temple. This first temple is really just a nice little chapel. Think of it as like a little country chapel. That's really all this was. When the Jews come back out of exile and rebuild the temple, they begin to expand it over hundreds of years. It's Herod the Great who basically rules before the birth of Jesus. Herod the Great is who really expanded the temple. Huge walls, big turrets, lots of space inside for people to gather. That kind of space is where merchants sold the stuff that angered Jesus and had him turn the tables over. It was not actually in the sacred bit. It was kind of in the yard around the sacred bit. All right. Any questions about those things? Yes? Where was the ark during the exile when the temple was 
Where was the Ark during the exile? The Ark was taken by one of the local tribes, and I don't remember who. So I'll look that up. I don't remember off the top of my head. It was not. It did not go to exile with them. So it essentially remained near Jerusalem, not in Jerusalem, but near it. And then, of course, obviously, it was lost. We don't know where it is, so that's why you've you've had people throughout history searching for the ark because we don't know where it is. I, I understand that the ark is in Okay. Um, so, yes. So the comment was that there is a whole movement um, around the idea that the Ark is in Ethiopia. Um, and there is a documentary. There are lots of articles. Sure. Um, I, I don't know that it's not the Ark. Um, it, there are problems with it. It is not the exact, it's not the right size. It doesn't mean that it isn't some remnant of it. Um, but as you know, Ethiopia, we, because of sort of the mid to late 20th century, we might think of Ethiopia as a destitute, um, impoverished nation. That's modern Ethiopia. Ancient Ethiopia was incredibly wealthy. And Ethiopia, Ethiopia as a nation, has very interesting ties to both the Old and the New Testament. They were significantly supportive of both Israel before Jesus' life and then Christianity after Jesus' life. So Ethiopia has a history of, there are, Ethiopia had the largest population of non-Semitic Jewish people for a very long time. So put another way, there were, there are entire communities of black Jews who root themselves for centuries in Ethiopia. In addition, and one may assume through the eunuch, the Ethiopian eunuch, but Ethiopia is one of the very first major nations to really adopt Christianity. And so what they have there is by some accounts, the ark that was saved in the first century from, Romans, from the Roman destruction of the temple. Because Ethiopia had a long connection to Judaism and then a pretty early adoption of Christianity, by 70, when Rome came and sacked Jerusalem, Ethiopia was actually the kind of the partner nation, so to speak, that could save some of the relics and most important bits of Israel. That is the story of what is in Ethiopia now. Sounds great. I, I have no problem with that being the Ark. It is absolutely not a, um, it is not agreed upon by even the majority of scholars that what is in Ethiopia is the Ark of the Covenant. So just important for us to know. It's fine. It's kind of like the garden tomb in Jerusalem. If you've ever been to Jerusalem, there are two tombs. There's the historic tomb, which is the one I would take you to, 
And that's in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, and you can walk in and all that sort of stuff. Then there's the garden tomb that is outside the city walls. And why does that exist? Well, that exists become because some very well-intentioned, faithful Protestants started going to Jerusalem, and they didn't like the tomb that the Roman Catholics and the Orthodox Christians liked, and it didn't look right. Because what do we know of the tomb from Scripture? It was in a garden, and it was a whole, kind of looked like a hobbit house. Yeah. And so that's really the way the Bible describes it. Well, I forget the guy's name, but this nice Protestant pastor was kind of walking around outside Jerusalem back in, I think, the early 20th century, maybe, maybe the 40s, I'm not sure. And he saw what looked like the tomb described in the gospel. He was like, that's it. Well, no archeological evidence of any kind. It just looked right. And so that became what we now know is the garden tomb. You can go see it, beautiful. Oh my gosh, it's gorgeous. The garden is well-maintained. It's got like grass and green. And it, Jerusalem's not a green place. And so there's this little spot, the garden tomb, that's perfectly green and lush. It's gorgeous. And so when you walk in, you're like, this must be the tomb, right? It's sort of the Disney World version of the tomb. Um, and who cares? Go and pray there. It doesn't matter. But archaeologically speaking, it's, that's not the tomb. That's not it. Um, but go see both. Why not? It does no harm. Yes. Reminds me of the many churches in Europe where I've been, and they claim to have a piece of the true cross. The true cross is a great, absolutely. It's, the true cross is another great example of the way in which people find meaning. And if meaning is found, great. I, I am not concerned. But the story of the true cross is that. I think I've said this before, but so you, you have the first century, Jesus, you know, lives, eyes, resurrects. Uh, his disciples begin to move around and tell people about Christianity. Rome figures out that Christianity is somewhat of a problem. Um, they try to quash it by, you know, killing people like Peter and others, and it doesn't quite work because it only makes it bigger. So by the third century, Constantine is smart enough politically to know if you can't beat them, join them. And so Constantine says, let's just legalize these Christians and let's incorporate their strength into Rome. Sounds smart to me. Constantine's mother, Helena, loves this story and Helena is the one who goes back to the Holy Land and begins to find all of these different spots. So you've got a minimum of 300 years between when the stuff happened in history and when Helena and her crew went and identified the spot. So when you go to the Holy Land today and you go to the Church of the Nativity, for example, and they say, here's where Jesus was born. What they're really saying is here's where Helena was told Jesus was born. And the amount of time between when Jesus was born and when Helena said that's where Jesus was born is longer than the United States has existed as a country. So just think of all the stuff that has shifted in time since the U.S. became a country. And does that mean that it's close? Totally. 
Like when I go to the Church of the Nativity and I see it, I love it. It's great. Is that the actual spot? No. It's, I mean, it's somewhere around here. It's fine. And what happened is you had one church over here say that's where Jesus was born. Then you had literally next door to that church, you had a different Christian group say, we really think it's over here because that looks more like it. So they built a chapel and a church there, whatever. I mean, I go to both all the time. And so in a sense, you had the true crosses like this. Helena shows up. She's going to all the different spots that the Christians are saying are important. And she goes down into a cave, essentially like a deep grotto. And there in the grotto is the wood of Jesus's cross. And so they collect the true cross and they break it up into lots of pieces and send it like gifts all over the Christian world. That's why there are churches all over Europe that claim to have a piece of the true cross. Now, do you think that the cross Jesus was crucified on was saved in a cave in Jerusalem for 300 years? Possible? Sure. Probable? Not likely. But did people increase their faith because they felt like they were in the presence of the true cross? I absolutely think that happened for thousands, countless people. So does it really matter? No. So true cross, sounds great. That's one of those things where, great, why? There's no problem with that. Let's, just, let's not get stuck in the, in the argument of something's historic accuracy when that is just, it's not the point. We miss the point if all we do is focus on the historic accuracy. It's like what we talked about years ago with Genesis and the creation story. Focusing on the historic accuracy of the creation story in Genesis misses what's actually so great about that story. If you have to make humans riding dinosaurs for everything to exist with the creation story, you've totally lost the point of the story. And so don't. Just let it be a story. And it's great. That is no problem. That's kind of, it's very Anglican, by the way, to approach it this way. It's sort of what we did with communion. So you had the Roman Catholics and the Orthodox, they do the transubstantiation where something can have a certain form, but its substance can change. Have we done this in here? I said this. So Aristotle, um, the great Christian theologian, um, Aristotle, he, he, one of his ideas was the difference between form and substance. And so he wrote, he wrote at one point that something can have a particular form, but its substance may not match its form. And so he uses a chair, but I mean, we could use this um, pedestal. It, its form is a pedestal and its substance could be a pedestal, but its form could be a pedestal and its substance not actually be a pedestal whatever aerosol but that kind of philosophical approach is what the early christians with all the creeds decided to adopt to explain transubstantiation a transubstantiation means a change of the substance that's what that word means and so what is happening is you've got bread and wine but then its substance changes when it is blessed by a priest its form does not. So when 
a Catholic priest in Catholicism, what the theology is based on Aristotle, that you see bread and wine, and it is both form and substance, bread and wine, until the consecration. And then its substance changes from its form. You still see the form of it as bread and wine, but it has substantively changed into flesh and blood. Now, Protestants said, no, it's bread and wine. And we're still going to pray about it, and we're going to share it, because Jesus shared it. But it's not any of that stuff. And then, as good Anglicans would, we said, how about the middle? And so, what we say is that it is consubstantiated. Essentially, all that means is it is truly, really the presence of Jesus' flesh and blood for a believer. And so, when we pray over it and consecrate bread and wine, we are not saying that its substance shifts. What we're saying is when a believer eats and drinks, it nourishes us as flesh and blood. That's the kind of lane I like to take with all the rest of this. Is that the true cross? Doesn't matter. Because if it helps me develop my faith, it works. And that's perhaps the most Anglican way to approach those kinds of issues. All right, so just real quickly, I want to read the very end of chapter 6, just to close off the whole construction of the temple. And remember how I began today's session was with that recalling of Deuteronomy about what a king's not supposed to do? Now let's read the rest of chapter 6. Chapter 6, verse 11. Now the word of the Lord came to Solomon concerning this house that you are building. If you will walk in my statutes, obey my ordinances, and keep all my commandments by walking in them, then I will establish my promise with you, which I made to your father David. I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. So Solomon built the house and finished it. He lined the walls of the house on the inside with boards of cedar from the floor of the house to the rafters of the ceiling. He covered them on the inside with wood and he covered the floor of the house with boards of cypress. Verse 22. He overlaid the whole house with gold in order that the whole house might be perfect. Even the whole altar that belonged to the inner sanctuary, he overlaid with gold. In the inner sanctuary, he made two cherubim of olive wood, each 10 cubits high and on and on. Jump to verse 37. In the fourth year, the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid in the month of Ziv. In the eleventh year, in the month of Bul, which is the eighth month, the house was finished in all its parts and according to all its specifications. He was seven years in building it. And so we just close off today's lesson by saying seven years later, after all of that very quiet construction, <laughs> The temple is now done. Next week, we're going to, I'm sorry, nope, next week's Holy Week, you're all gonna be in church. In two weeks, we're going to develop the idea of now what when they have a temple. Because for the first time, the Jewish people have a temple and that changes their identity forever. And we're gonna talk about that in two weeks. So a reminder, Sunday, Palm Sunday, We've got lots of great experiences for you in Holy Week. Do come to something extra. If you can do the Thursday, Friday, Saturday night triduum, 
it's gonna be great, you're gonna love it. But do pick at least one something special to go to. If you're gonna only pick one, I definitely recommend Good Friday. Second, Monday, Thursday. And then we will see you Easter Sunday, a week from Sunday. Thanks guys, bye.